This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guest on Off the Shelf is Dr. Evan Lowe. Evan is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals and uh, today, we're going to be talking about the antibiotics or manufacturing industry, uh, the state of play, why it's such a unique marketplace, and you know how fundamentally important it is to our healthcare system. So, so Evan, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Roger. Just so pleased to be here with you. Looking forward to uh, spending the time. Yeah, this is, a, to me, it's a fascinating subject. And you know, I, I read these articles over the years and think about where hospitals have to take extraordinary measures to fight resistant uh, bacteria and that sort of thing. And, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. But first, I think uh, I'd like to, uh, you to share with the listening audience this, your background and sort of how you came to Paratech Pharmaceuticals. I'm an uh, internist and cardiologist by training and spent nearly 20 years in academia. And, um, you know, what does that mean, uh, academia? Well, you know, where I trained and where I, where I grew up in terms of my clinical skills, we always believed in, I think, the uh, tripartite mission of excellence in clinical care, teaching, which is teaching the next generation, as well as fundamental research. And uh, I loved all three. And, uh, you know, I think it was in a place of my heart where we were always being pushed to ask ourselves, do we have the answers to how best to care for these patients? And unfortunately, every patient that we saw offered an opportunity to ask some fundamental questions about new biology or new medicines or places where we didn't understand the pathophysiology of what was actually happening in various disease entities. And uh, my area of expertise within cardiology ended up being uh, caring for patients with end-stage heart and end-stage lung disease and uh, caring for patients uh, that have had uh, heart transplants as well as lung transplants. And so there was clearly in my mind a, uh, an understanding that in order to have successful organ transplants, you needed to have an army of ancillary support services from different specialties, as well as antibiotics, in order to keep these patients alive. Because when you, let's say, do a heart transplant, you're actually transitioning individuals from the disease of end-stage heart failure to the disease of being immunosuppressed. And then you've got all of the sequelae and the complications related to being immunosuppressed when your immune system is not as strong as it needs to be. And therefore, infections tend to be sort of right up at the top of things that you worry about all the time for these patients. And so I did that for about 20 years, had a, had a great career, uh, wrote a lot of papers and uh, had some great time in terms of thinking about uh, fundamental questions and answering those. I think, you know, at the end of that period of time, I was looking for other challenges for myself. And I thought the pharmaceutical industry was a place that I had been in a principal investigator, run a lot of, you know, very important clinical trials. But I thought on the other side, I could actually make a difference, not just one patient at a time, but if you do it well and you do it right and develop the right innovative medicines for the world, you can actually save lives on a multiple of tens of thousands, if not millions of lives on an annual basis. And that was very compelling for me. and It was very consistent with why I went into medicine. And therefore, I, I transitioned into a couple of very large pharma companies, Wyeth and then Pfizer, and I thought that that was really a great place for me to learn. Ultimately, though, 
I think when you get into those big organizations, you can get a little bit lost in all of the bureaucracy and all of the other administrative work that you get to do. And I had an opportunity to pivot out of that setting into one in which we just had a single product, which is what Paratech actually had, which I thought was one of the most innovative and most exciting new antibiotics potentially that we could introduce into the human health sector to save lives. And uh, I think that's the simple answer to your question. Can you talk a little bit about Paratech? Uh, you know, why was it founded? Paratech was founded in uh, 1996 by Stuart Levy and uh, Wally Gilbert. And uh, they were two visionaries who really believed that um, there was an opportunity here to really address something called antimicrobial resistance, which I'll refer to as AMR. And what that basically simply is, is that over time, guess what? Bugs always win. Bugs in nature are much smarter than we are. And when you apply a solution such as a new antibiotic into an environment, over time, they will find ways to actually circumvent that. We're living in right now in the COVID environment. We're, what are we talking about today now? We're talking about variants, right? Right. Viruses are doing the exact same thing. They want to survive just like we do. And their machineries are pretty smart. You know, they've been around for centuries and thousands of years before we landed on this planet. And guess what? They're going to be here, you know, well after we're gone as well. And so they had a vision that they could actually potentially think about a solution space for serious community acquired infections. Those are the ones that we get exposed to by being out here as opposed to being in the hospital setting. And so they had a technology based upon tetracyclines where they thought they could actually circumvent the two known clinically relevant mechanisms of resistance seen with tetracyclines to date. Tetracyclines historically, Roger, you, you, you may or may not uh, know this, but tetracyclines were the second class of innovative new antibiotics ever introduced to humans. First one was introduced in 1995 by Benjamin Dugar out of Letterly Labs uh, with a drug called oreomycin. It's gold in color. We thought that, you know, that was consistent with its value, but it was introduced three years after penicillin. And again, thought to be another potential panacea with regards to killing bacteria. Over time, over decades, you know, it's developed, some, you know, bacteria developed some resistance and Paratech was really focused on developing a redesign of the basic molecule to circumvent resistance. And I think that's the molecule that we have here in Nuzira. So I was very excited about taking that on. Yeah, can you talk more about um, Nuzira? And it, to me, it's fascinating, you know, how long it takes to, to get something like that developed. And just in terms of the, on the supply side, the, the investment and the need to be made in these studies and the compliance issues and that sort of thing. It's a hard business. That's one thing that I'll say that it's underappreciated. It's not a business for the faint of heart because it's, a, it's an industry that's actually, unfortunately, characterized by failures more than successes. Um, you know, if you think about new chemical entities that actually get first into human studies out, out of the laboratory, only about one in 10 of them actually get to an approval. Nine out of 10 actually fail. You know, think about the aerospace industry. If we had a nine out of 10 failure rate with aerospace, it would make me a little leery about getting on an airplane. <laughs> right. We, yeah. we expect that to work 100% of the time, don't we, Roger? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and so in this particular industry, you know, we invest a tremendous amount of time and uh, money and, uh, you know, brain power, intellectual capacity into developing these products. And it takes a long time. This new Zyra product was actually first designed on a piece of paper in 1996, and we didn't get it approved by the FDA until 2018. Think about that if we had a pandemic wow. that was actually driven by a bacteria that this product could actually cure 
1996, we'd have to wait 22 years in order for that to get approved. Now, obviously, things would move quicker because of, you know, the kind of investments that we're talking about here. But we can't, as a, a society, underappreciate how long this takes to develop. People were just all really excited about the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine being developed in less than a year. But if you go back and really look at the history, talk to Katherine Jansen, uh, whom I know very well, who's the leader of that program at Pfizer, they first started working on that RNA technology for vaccines about 10 years ago. So it just turns out that COVID landed at a time when they were just ready to get into big, big clinical trials. Sometimes serendipity is, yeah. is our friend. It does take a long, long time and a big commitment to get there. So with Nuzaira, I understand there's ongoing research looking at its potential um, in response to bio threats. Can you talk a little bit about that? We got about a minute left. We can continue that okay. in the next segment. Yeah, look, Nuzaira is what we refer to as a broad spectrum uh, antibiotic. And we had it approved in 2018 for serious community acquired pneumonia, as well as acute bacterial skin and skin structure infection. And uh, 10 years ago, we also knew that tetracyclines had broad-based activity in other important uh, sectors that included actually bioterrorism organisms such as anthrax, plague, glanders. And so we started a research program about 10 years ago to explore that. And this product is really, really potent against some of those products. And we're excited to be able to expand the opportunity space by doing further research to try to understand whether this product could actually be utilized to actually save lives if there was another anthrax attack that would come here to the United States. That's perfect, Evan, because we're right up on the break. And then when we come back, we'll, I want to talk a little bit more about Nuzira. And I, I just want to talk to you more generally about antibiotic, antibiotic resistance and, you know, just what it means for, you know, for healthcare, and for national security and that sort of thing in Great. terms of responding to it. So Great. my guest today is Dr. Evan Lowe. He is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Dr. Evan Lowe. He is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals, and we're talking about antibiotics and antibiotic resistance. And Evan, I'm, you know, I read an article and there's a quote here that just sort of made me stop and really think and essentially said, nothing happens in a hospital that can be successful without antibiotics. To me, that just tells you how fundamental they are to healthcare for Americans, for humans. And the growing challenge of antibiotic resistance, which we started to talk about last segment a little bit, can you talk about what it is what the implications are of it and why we need to be focused on it? Yeah, I mean, going back to something I said earlier, look, bugs always win at the end of the day. And what do we do with surgeries or bone marrow transplants or any other procedures or heart transplants in the hospital? We do, first thing we do is we cut into the skin. The skin is our best protection against the influx of bacteria. When you think about the other procedures, the other complex procedures that are happening in hospitals relative to patients who are sick, that affect their immune system, such as bone marrow transplants, or just being chronically hospitalized can, can affect your immune system as well. There's an expectation that there's gonna be an antibiotic there to make those procedures successful. Without having the right antibiotic in those particular settings, these procedures cannot have the level of success that we expect today. The other complexity around the hospital setting is that what happens is that the use of these antibiotics in the hospital setting, because of how ubiquitous they are and that they are necessary, leads to resistance in the hospital setting. 
But what people don't appreciate is resistant bugs that appear in the hospital end up in the community setting. The most common one here is called MRSA, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, which is a bug that actually infects the skin. Well, the first incidences of those bacteria appeared in the hospital setting. But what happens when you leave the hospital or when a doctor leaves the hospital? It's on their hands. You touch a doorknob and guess what? It then starts colonizing and these bacteria live on the surface of our skin. And so the next time we get a cut, let's say we go run out for a, for a baseball and we, and we fall down and we scrape our skin, guess what? We've challenged that system. That, cha that system is now compromised and the bacteria can ultimately get in. And so over time, what you see is that the environment changes and there's an environment that requires us to actually create new antibiotics because the bacteria will develop mechanisms around how these antibiotics actually work. Some classes of antibiotics are more prone to develop resistance much more quickly. And others, such as our tetracycline class that Nuzira is part of, actually is relatively slow in terms of the ability of bacteria to induce resistance, which is a good thing. I think if you look at the last 20 to 30 years, there's not been a new resistance mechanism in any bacteria against tetracyclines, but the two that were established are the ones that we went after. And so we redesigned the base molecule into Nuzira. And the additional aspect of what we were able to do is that we were able to create not only an intravenous formulation that could be used in the hospital, but we created an oral formulation that mimics exactly the levels of antibiotic that, we, that you can achieve with an intravenous, which means that you can help get patients out of the hospital. Everyone wants to get out of the hospital sooner because then you have less of a chance of developing or picking up one of these resistant bacteria. Having this oral formulation is one that makes us relevant to be able to address what I said earlier, which is those community infections, those infections that, number one, we want to actually attack early so we prevent people from getting into the hospital. But if they have to be in a hospital for a procedure, we can get them out quicker so they don't actually pick up a resistant bacteria that ends up complicating their surgery and keeping them in the hospital even longer. So, you know, it's one of those things where I think the flexibility of Nuzira allows it to be used in every setting of care. And, and that's one of the really exciting uh, opportunities with this product. You know, one of the things that um, in reading and studying up to be able to have a conversation with you Evan, on this <laughs> stuff is, um, is uh, that sort of really struck me is um, it's estimated there were about 160,000 deaths in the U.S. from resistance per year and just worldwide. It's about, I think, 700,000 or something. And, the trend is not good in the sense that by 2050, it could be uh, 10 million deaths or more from antibiotic resistance situations. Is that, you know, that's why this is so vitally important. Yeah. I mean, think about it. It's, it's in some, it's in some regards, I, <laughs> I, I talk about it this way. Maybe people don't like to hear about the word pandemic in other settings that we're uh, living through with, with COVID, but it is actually the slow rolling pandemic that is unspoken today. Think about those numbers. I mean, we are mortified and we feel very, very heartbroken over the fact that over 500,000 people today have died from COVID over the last you know, nine to 10 to 12 months, or now I guess it's a year now as of today. But think about 160,000 in the US dying annually. It's not died, you know, they're not dying at the pace that we see, but it's clearly not an unfamiliar scenario in every hospital setting when people get that sick. And, you know, taking a step back and thinking about you know, where have we come as a society? You know, the, the two big interventions that really changed the life expectancy of humans in the turn of the 20th century was the introduction of clean water 
and the introduction of antibiotics in 1942. The current marketplace is actually very fragile for having new innovative antibiotics coming onto the marketplace. If we were not to have a, a robust marketplace in terms of antibiotic innovation, we could be back in the pre-penicillin era in the not too distant future. And for those patients who have died today because of multi-drug resistant bacteria, they were in the pre-penicillin era. And that's heartbreaking because I think we as a society owe it to ourselves, owe it to our, our fellow Americans to be able to provide antibiotics because we know that they are actually life-saving therapies. No one questions whether they're life-saving. It's very clear that they save lives. And again, that I think is a big underpinning for driving my passion for continuing to work in this sector. You know, with COVID-19, just talking about the role of antibiotics, I don't know what percentage, but let's say it's 20% or you'll tell me the right number, but the number of people uh, who have COVID-19 who die from secondary infections like pneumonia, you know, uh, the bacterial uh, infections like Nuzira and is something that can be used to treat pneumonia. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. It's one of our two approved indications. Um, in the pre-COVID era, almost all of our pneumonia cases were in the setting of individuals who had influenza, you know, in the same type of sort of post-viral pneumonia type of syndrome. Today, as you mentioned with COVID, you know, a, a recent post-mortem study, and again, that's of individuals who have died. Neil Clancy, a professor out at the University of Pittsburgh, found that about 30 to 35% of individuals on post-mortem looking at their lungs under a microscope showed evidence of a secondary bacterial infection. Now, that number for people who are alive and actually get discharged from the hospital is probably much lower, but that doesn't mean that they don't require adjunctive antibacterials in order to also treat them, in addition to the therapies you've heard on the lay press around dexamethasone or antibody therapies, et cetera. Yeah, this number, that's even, that's higher than I, than I thought, thought 35% or so. Um, so, Evan, we're right up on the break. And when we come back, you know, uh, I want to talk, start talking to you about the marketplace and just the unique um, cha structure challenges or characteristics of, you know, the market that you're, that Paratech is, um, you know, operating in, in, in terms of, you know, developing antibiotics and, and trying to deliver them. And, and just again, and focus on the implications and how do we think about this from a policy perspective to ensure that the right incentives are in place uh, for development um, and the, the appropriate demand side um, structures and frameworks are provided to ensure not, I mean, this is a national security issue and a, and a national health security issue, quite frankly. And it's something I think we really, as, as a country, need to think about and focus on. If anything, COVID has just shined a spotlight on pharmaceuticals in general and active ingredients in the supply chain and how they're developed. So we'll get to all that when we come back. My guest today is Dr. Evan Lowe. He is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Dr. Evan Lowe. He is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals, a company that focuses on developing antibiotics. You know, the, the market dynamics of it, Evan, are, are just so interesting to me because it's not your classic supply and demand and, you know, where you think about um, how the free market works and that sort of thing. It's, 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 there's so many variables that come into play. So I, can you talk about the unique 
challenges and opportunities of uh, you know the the antibiotic ecosystem. Yeah, thank you, uh, Roger. The base case here is that there's tremendous opportunity because bugs always win, as I said. There's a constant need to stay ahead of the innovation curve. And unless we stay ahead of the innovation curve, as I said in the prior segment, we're going to be back to this pre-penicillin era where when people develop, where an individual might develop an antibiotic-resistant infection, there may not be an antibiotic that can actually treat that. And patients will just go on to have a bad outcome that could include actually dying. But if you look at the marketplace, I've been doing antibiotic development in the pharmaceutical space generally or broadly for about 20 years or so. There's been a real evolution uh, to this sector. And the functional aspect of the evolution is today is that 95% of the innovation is done by small biotech companies like Paratech that have a single product that are trying to survive and moving forward. Large pharma companies like you know Pfizer, like Merck, like uh, Novartis, they've largely pivoted out of doing fundamental research and development. And uh, they're not part of this. And, and I think the unique marketplace aspect of this is that although well-intentioned, these antibiotics that get developed are ones that people want to put on the shelf and put behind glass in sort of this break glass if necessary to use only if you have no other options available. And so what that does, it actually changes this free market economy. And the rationale makes sense. You want to minimize the use of these new antibiotics to preserve their use for as long as, as possible, because the more exposure, guess what? Over time, you'll, you will develop resistance. However, it's turned out that when you blend that into a reimbursement system that was designed 30 to 40 years ago based upon a diagnostic related group bundle payment system, when hospitals who are really a small margin business that are kind of like a grocery store in terms of low single digit percentage margins, and now when you add COVID on top of it, they're losing money with every case. And so what they're doing is that they try to think about how to be economical with regards to the resources they get expended for any infection. And so antibiotics tend to be, you know, 60 to 70% of the formulary usage. As I said, many, most of the procedures utilize antibiotics. And they're motivated on an administrative side to choose those generic antibiotics that are older and cheaper, as opposed to using the more expensive antibiotics, which we've developed which I think are not really expensive when you think about them saving the life of your mother, father, brother, sister, grandmother, grandfather, but relative to a fixed payment bundled system for that includes bed fees, x-rays, blood work, et cetera, that's a low hanging fruit where the hospitals say, you know what, time out, we're gonna keep these on the shelf. In fact, we're not even gonna keep them on the shelf. We're not even gonna allow them into the hospital. And so if they're not even in the hospital for a small company like ours, we can't even provide it if a doctor calls us because we don't have the permission based upon their formulary system to actually bring that antibiotic into the hospital setting. And therefore, guess what? Patients get a delay in getting these antibiotics if we go through the paperwork of a day or two. And we know that if you delay a serious infection from getting treated with the appropriate antibiotic for a day or two, guess what? Patients are a lot sicker. And it's never really clear to me, if you wait two or three days, that an antibiotic can make a difference. And so the outcomes are clearly worse. There's lots of literature about that as well. And so, we struggle to get our antibiotic appropriately placed in these particular settings so that doctors actually have a choice. So it's not about the best antibiotic, the right antibiotic for the right patient at the right time. It's actually, there's an administrative gauntlet that we have to cross in order to even get it on the formulary so a doctor has a choice to even use it. And so it, here you have great innovation and it's actually been being put on the shelf. Contrast that with 
you know, oncology drugs, which I'm happy that there's so much innovation in oncology, but these are products, oncology products are ones that may extend your life for six weeks or eight weeks. But guess what? The payment system, because of the way it's been designed, these agents get used on the first day of their approval. So it's a very different dynamic marketplace uh, from that standpoint. And so as a consequence, we have to raise all the money that we need in order to survive. And the capital markets today are not really receptive because our products have really struggled to show commercial success. Yeah, it's, um, I'm trying to search for the right way. It's this conundrum. It seems to me you have an effective product that people are incentivized not to use for, it sounds like two reasons. One, it may cost more. Mm-hmm. And two, gee, like you said, um, use in the case of a break glass and use in the case of emergency when nothing else works. And um, to try to, I guess, in part, you know, if it works really well, you don't want to overuse it because then you go down that path, right? Of, you know, yeah, but the potential. Only, the caveat there is that we yeah. like, be, we would like to be behind the glass. We're not even allowed. <laughs> yes. We're not even allowed to be behind the glass, Roger. Yeah. I, I like the way you said that. That's that. Uh, yeah. So, um, can you talk real briefly about the challenges that you started to mention about the capital markets and not, not raising money? If I understood correctly from my reading, it can cost over a billion dollars to develop one of these antibiotics. Can you talk a little bit about that supply side or the, the push side, what it, you know, what those challenges on that side are? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's capital intensive, as you said, and I don't think that estimate of a billion dollars is too far off from where Paratech actually had to be in order to get our product approved over, what did I say earlier, 21 to 22 yeah. year period of, of development. And assuming you're successful with approval, one of the goals of a small company like ours is to get to a place where you're profitable, right? Right. Well, think yeah. about sort of the slow ramp that I talked about and described in order to get converts in terms of hospitals and physicians over time. Look, we're a tiny little biotech company. We launched with 40 sales reps in the U.S. Compare that to when I was at Wyeth and we launched a, another product that I developed, in a third-generation uh, tetracycline called Tigacil. We launched, you know, with 400 or 500 reps, okay? And so that's all we could afford. And so yeah. generally, it probably will take somewhere in the range of two to $300 million to cross the transom to get to profitability in another three years' worth of time. And until we get the profitability, sometimes investors say, guess what? Come back to us when you're profitable. Profitable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't bother me now. <laughs> yeah, understandably. In a certain, right, right. So from your, and now I know this is a big question, but what does success look like for the industry? As I understand, there's a handful of small public uh, companies that are doing this type of research in the United States, and or there were, or and, and some of them already gone out of business. What does success look like? I would say that, you know, going back to what you said on the on the push R&D side, the federal government has done a really nice job of creating, I think, pools of capital from the NIH to Carbex and other uh, foundations to actually support early, early stage research. The challenge is that there really hasn't been something on the demand side or the pull side, as, as you described. And I think there needs to be some type of incentive structure to actually ensure that companies like ours can get to the other side of profitability. You know, the GAIN Act was something that was, you know, promulgated in 2012, and that was something that the government did to actually help companies have extended regulatory exclusivity for a period of a decade, which is really great, helped my company to survive. My company wouldn't be here without the GAIN, Gain Act, so I mm-hmm. want to thank Senators Casey and others who actually, actually put that through. But since then, there's been no other, you know, government uh, legislative 
uh, bills to move that forward. There's one out there called the GAIN Act that we're very enthusiastic about that could create a separate payment system outside of the DRG to create, I think, the right type of payment scheme to recognize innovation that would get us out of this administrative choice of cheaper generics versus actually the right antibiotic for the right patient at the right time. And there's other bills out there uh, as well that I think may think about ways to basically create loans or other guarantees for small companies like ours for a two to three year period of time to get us over that transom to get the profitability. And I think putting in place some type of government support for that would help ensure that this industry, you know, continues to grow and, and remain innovative. The companies that you mentioned, I think it's heartbreaking that, you know, several of them actually develop products that got approved by the FDA. But within nine to 10 months or nine to 12 months of their, their approval, when they tried to launch a product, they ran out of cash and they had to file for bankruptcy. One of them in particular got bought by an Indian company for pennies on the dollar. So it's one of those things where, you know, we think the technology gets developed here, you know, should be technology that stays here, especially if it gets government funding. And we want it to be uh, for saving lives and, and protecting all Americans. Yeah, we have about, you know, a minute left in the segment. So, uh, you know, on the reform of um, reimbursement and creating some incentives, is, is would part of that be, I'm just curious, you know, because I, I, I talk to folks about outcome-based contracts in some cases for pharmaceuticals. Is the, the idea of reforming reimbursement for the hospitals and their costs is it, it seems to me that you know a, a key place that people have to look at uh, am i right about that or yeah i think that outcomes based uh shared risk with insurers would be a great idea in fact we've uh, proposed that in several settings but we've been unsuccessful to get them to put up their risk as well i mean our standards that we follow from fda is that we have somewhere between 80 to 90 percent rates of efficacy that's as good as any antibiotic that's ever been developed and ever evaluated in pivotal trials. I would take that all day long, all day long, relative to what would the payback be with the right data to say, you know what, the antibiotic failed. You don't have to pay for that particular antibiotic at that time. I, yeah. I would love to develop that uh, type of shared risk program. Yeah, right. And Evan, so we're up on the break. When we come back, I, I want to talk to you about the relevance to the federal government, you know, the support to the warfighter, your, you know, your work with BARDA, um, all really interesting stuff. My guest today is Dr. Evan Lowe. He is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Dr. Evan Lowe. He is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals, a manufacturer of antibiotics. And uh, Evan, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about your work with the Department of Defense and how you're supporting the warfighter. But I did have one follow-up question that I meant to ask about, you know, the, the market or, or the, the supply side. And it, just a quick answer, just you, you talked about the development of New Zyra and, you know, it's taken 20 some years to get to the market. Has the technology of developing antibiotics changed? You know, we, we hear a lot about mRNA and, you know, the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna. Is there other technological changes in, in your space as well? Yeah, there are. I think some companies are really out there with phage technology and uh, uh, other approaches to trying to uh, uh, attack uh, uh, bacteria. I think it's some very exciting technology. We think about our technology as kind of high-end blue-collar R&D uh, in the sense that we're small molecule chemists, 
and yeah. we developed and we developed a chemical molecule. And people may not realize, but the pharmaceutical industry was founded on chemistry, right? Right. And so yeah. what's cool about this traditional, more traditional small molecule approach, Roger, is that we have very good data and know how to evaluate these chemicals in terms of where it binds, how it binds, how to test it in bacteria, how to test it in animals. And that increases our probability of success as we move into humans. And the other nice thing about this technology that we have with Nuzira, with tetracyclines, is that we have nearly 80 years of safety data with this class of molecule. And that gives me great comfort as a physician to know that not only is my 2000 plus safety database that we use to apply for approval consistent with what we've seen with other tetracyclines, but since we've been in the marketplace for over two years, you know, we're, we're obligated to do something called pharmacovigilance and report every adverse event that a doctor shares with us back to the FDA. There's been nothing here that's popped up that has been outside of the realm of the general umbrella that tetracyclines are safe and well-tolerated molecules. And so that means that I think patients are all going to do very, very well with, with, with this molecule. Yes, a highly reliable model. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. So DOD. Can you talk about what Paratech is, is doing with uh, the Department of Defense? Well, we're really excited about what we see as almost an open canvas of opportunity with the Department of Defense. Um, as I mentioned earlier, this molecule is a tetracycline-derived molecule, and tetracyclines have historically had very broad-based applicability to what we refer to as relatively uncommon but potentially lethal pathogens that are out there in the world today. And that includes bioterrorism organisms such as anthrax, uh, tularemia, as well as plague and glanders. And we started a program about 10 years ago to specifically evaluate that opportunity, thinking that if this molecule got approved for indications that are consistent with FDA regulatory guidance, that there's an opportunity after that to expand it, to understand its, its efficacy there against these uh, bioterrorism organisms. And, because of the work that we've done, 10 years worth of data plus the approval, we actually responded to a re uh, request for, for a proposal from BARDA about two years ago, specifically because they were looking for a product that could actually be brought into the strategic national stockpile to circumvent the known resistant anthrax technology that they believe is out there today by bad people that could potentially be introduced into the United States or against our warfighters. And so we were given this very unusual grant to not only be supported to develop Uzira against pulmonary anthrax, which is the, you know, this is how the spores actually get into the human body, but we were actually given dollars to actually create onshore U.S. manufacturing for Uzira from API, active pharmaceutical ingredient, all the way through final drug product, anticipating that we will be able to supply Uzira to the federal government for as long as they need it. In addition to that, because of the fact that the Department of Defense has broad-based research capabilities to evaluate the rarest and most deadly pathogens that they find in all of these different theaters that active warfighters are dispatched to, we're working with the DOD actively on a research basis to understand how Nuzira can work against some of those deadly pathogens that are only seen in theaters of war that our active warfighters have been exposed to. And we think that the validation by BARDA on the scientific rigor and the scientific completeness of our current data set for anthrax, plus that development program, plus the fact that in extending our conversations in DOD to the Navy, to the Army, to the Marines, et cetera, there's a lot of interest in actually procuring 
Musaira for our current deployment forces in the various settings in which they are that they are placed. I mean, think about it today. You know, for instance, in the Navy, 440 ships in the Navy today that are out on our seas protecting our shores and the interests of our allies. Every one of those ships has a formulary and doctors on board. What would happen? I mean, it happened to my brother, right? My brother was a line officer in the Navy on the Midway in the Indian, Indian Ocean. He perforated an appendix, had to have emergency surgery in the middle of the night and needed broad spectrum intravenous antibiotics to save his life. What if they didn't have the right antibiotic in place? You can't just get there <laughs> overnight. You can't just walk it over and just go yes. down to the CVS or a Walgreens and get it. And so we think that there's a big opportunity here for our, our warfighters because if you think about it, it's not just for bioterrorism, uh, Roger. Think about what's more common with our active warfighters is they get a wound. And what is a big emphasis, not only to keep them alive, but limb preservation. In the absence of limb preservation, these warfighters can't get back to normal activities of daily living can't get back to what they are trained to do, which is to protect us and to complete their tasks. And today, guess what? There's not just MRSA, there's multi-drug resistant acinetobacter in the sands of the Middle East. And there's other multiple uh, resistant pathogens out there that we think Nuzaira has the opportunity to be a first intervention in terms of antibiotic. And as you know, from your personal experience, if you treat it well the first time, it doesn't come back and you don't have to worry that you've got a resistant bug. That's right. And in this case, you have a pill. Thank you for right? bringing that up. I mean, right. one of the things that you know, has been really has, has been big in the lay press today is like, wow, Pfizer and Moderna have these great vaccines, but you have to find special refrigerators to get it to minus 80 degrees centigrade in order to, to transport and, and to maintain. We have a product, Nuzira, which is room temperature stable for many, many years. What does that offer as a pill? Well, that means that the warfighter can actually have it in their own packs and they could deploy it. Let's say that they got attacked with anthrax. They could immediately take it is the dream here is the vision and prevent them from actually even getting sick with anthrax as a, as, as a prophylaxis. The fact that it's room temperature can means it can be deployed in every setting, forward bases, et cetera, without having to cart around a giant minus 70 refrigerator in order to keep it stable. Can you imagine if you had to have that as a requirement in order to keep that product? Our particular product is, is room temperature stable. It's another big aspect of why Barda was so enthusiastic about wanting that in the stockpile as well, because then you could keep it there for many years and have it available for distribution at the drop of a hat. Yeah, that's um game changer right there. I understand that your product is on the joint deployment formulary. That's right. Um, right. Um, is a flip side. It's one thing to be on the formulary. This other thing to have the contracts to supply the product to the department and to the warfighter. Is DOD executing on that or looking at that? Not, not quite yet. Um, mm -hmm. But because of the fact that we are planning to procure uh, 10,000 treatment courses for anthrax into the strategic national stockpile as part of our contract, in preparatory work for that, Nuzaira has actually been, been, uh, been, been put on the joint deployment formulary. So the access is, is clearly established. Now for us is actually to walk around and actually do some more education and create the relationships with the various different departments of defense to make them number one aware of NewsHour, which I think we have done. And then I, I do think that uh, it's just a matter of time before I think that we're gonna see NewsHour uh, on the shelves of those uh, deployment formularies uh, in, in, in the military. So it, it's really, what they've said to us, Roger, NewsHour is a twofer. One is a great for 
skin infections, preserving limbs, and all of the worries that they have against MRSA, that horrible staph bacteria that we talked about earlier that could potentially lead to limb loss. In addition to that, the twofer here is that if there was a bioterrorism attack with anthrax, there's a potential here that this product could actually be available as well to actually keep our warfighters safe. We've got about a minute left. Um, this discussion today, and I, th- I stop and think about like the overarching approach to uh, some of these key supply chain issues, and I, it's whether it's national security, now national health security. Where do you think the government is going to be headed in that regard when it looks across the medical supply chain? I think you know, one of the lessons we have all learned is that we need to think about reliability in the supply chain, for lack of a better term, and consistency to be able to take care of the warfighter, but also you know society at large here in the United States. Do you have any final thoughts on where you think we're headed in that regard? Yeah, I think the final thoughts were that I think that the pandemic that we're living through here, Roger, was a big wake-up call for all of us. And I think that there's two mandates here that I think HHS will follow through on. And not only through uh, EO13944, as well as EO14017, where there's been a mandate to designate essential medicines, but it's also to designate the expectation that FDA will work with manufacturers in order to bring onshoring capabilities. I think it goes beyond just the capability. It's actually also having it just in time available in the, in the SNS. And I think there's going to be reform coming in terms of the SNS. We think Musira is a, is a solution that, that, that must be in the SNS for immediate deployment, but also we're going to need time as a small company to be able to ramp up our capabilities to deliver it if and when either a bioterrorism attack came our way, or there is no guarantee here that the next pandemic might not be bacterial. We're all up to speed on, on the viruses now, but guess what? It could be a bacteria the next time, and all of a sudden we're in a bad place if we just don't have the capabilities uh, put into our production manufacturing, as well as current existing SNS. Yeah, it's got to be a holistic you know, investment in policy, whether it's on the supply side, the, the push side, and the pull side. You, want, you, know, you, you really want what, what, uh, what Bob Cadillac, who was the outgoing Asper, said, is that you really want an end-to-end solution, solution. approach. And right. I think that's really what we're talking about here. And you know, if you're caught short, people will die. Right. And that's not what we ever want. Absolutely. And uh, that's a great discussion today, Evan. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for so much for coming on the show. Uh, Thank you, Roger. It was a pleasure and an honor for us to be able to have this conversation. Thank you. Great. I want to thank my guest today, Dr. Evan Lowe. He is the CEO of Paratech Pharmaceuticals. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.